Welcome to Neighborly. A note on our avian audience. House number 17, Little Treat. There have always been birds on Little Street. Big birds, small birds, brown birds, blue birds, and of course, the usual coterie of pigeons that inevitably find even the most wayward of cul-de-sacs. Most of these birds are simple, everyday sorts of birds, busy with simple, everyday bird business. And at the end of each simple, everyday bird day, they go home to their simple, everyday birdhouses in the gardens of homes that line Little Street's smile. Most. Not all birds are content with the mundanity of ordinary life. There are those who find themselves aching for something more. The other birds may scoff and scorn. They might hang their heads in shame. They might fix each other with a beady stare as if to say no. Surely not this. Not again. But when a fledgling finds its fate of eating and sleeping and tweeting a little too confining... It takes its roost somewhere in the rafters of number 17. Number 17 is a perfectly pleasant house, which nestles in a gap that isn't there between number 16 and number 18. It is the kind of house that would like you to think that it is harmless. After all, it stretches only a single story too tall for the space it occupies, which is perfectly within the bounds of propriety. The front façade is barely wide enough to house both a door and enough breathing room for a hallway to follow it. No need to pay attention to the way that its walls have swallowed number 16 security features, or how it winds itself around number 18 so sweetly, clinging to its neighbor as a talon does to a branch on a windy day. True, it may sacrifice number 18's garden and most of its natural light, but that's a sacrifice number 17 is willing to make. But you're not here for architecture, are you? No, you're here for something a little more exciting than the facade. You want to know what's inside. So I'll indulge you. Inside number 17, there lives a person. A human person. At least, I think they're a human person. I've never bothered to ask. They're a very clever human person even if it's unclear what exactly they do. They very rarely leave their house. Very occasionally, they will nestle their face into their hood as they brave the few feet from the front door to the postbox halfway down the street. They let the envelopes fall without a word and turn back to face the short walk home. They're a private human person, you know. I don't think they'd like to have people poking about. It would be quite uncomfortable to think that someone was watching you. That someone was casually taking detailed notes to relay to unknown ears, and that perhaps you should be more careful to keep that perfect persona behind closed doors. After all, there are doors on houses for a reason. No, I don't think the human person who lives at house number 17 would like that I was poking your nose into their business. I don't think they'd like it one bit. I'd feel bad for them, really, I would. 
If only I didn't know about the files they keep on every resident of Little Street. They're real files, too. The binding paper is cream-smooth to touch, and each carefully matches the precise shade of the front door of its corresponding house. You see, these files are important. These files open those doors, bearing all those secrets for the world to see. I say world. I really mean the human person who lives at number 17, and perhaps, well, who can say what goes in those envelopes, or where they might be going? Only the postman, and he'd never tell. His lips were sealed. I wonder where the birds learn to sew. On this particular morning, it is a little brown wren who has come a-knocking on number 17's door. No, really. It's found a stick to catch the ring, and it's flapping its tiny wings as hard as it can to make a good, resounding clatter against the plate. It's actually quite impressive. The last mumblings of a murmuration of starlings have certainly noticed. It would be polite for them to go and fetch the human person who lives at number 17, but it seems they'd rather sit on their perches and gossip. There's a few jackdaws and a magpie hanging about, and who knows how many other birds lining the spaces just out of sight. But none of them seem interested in helping little Rand catch anyone's attention. It's hard to tell if the established flock are just rude, or if this is some sort of hazing ritual. Either way, the wren is still going. It'll get motion sickness at this rate. It's hard to tell how long it can keep this up for. It's already beginning to flag and falter, even if its eyes are sharp as flint. At least, if it falls, it has nothing to fear from the neighborhood cats. They've learned their lesson. And look, the door just opened. It's oddly silent for something that looks so much like it should creak. The little wren darts in, and the door swings shut almost instantly. All the better to keep out prying eyes, don't you think? I think we ought to take a look inside. A faint trickle of light weeps in through the dusty half-circle of the glass doorplane. It's hardly as if there's any room for windows, so the gloom is hardly a surprise. One can only assume that the human person who lives here doesn't mind the dark. The light fixtures hang empty, or at least empty of light bulbs. Though the house has many rooms and cozy corners, some of the birds that live here like to live life on the edge, or, more precisely, on the rubberized copper that dangles from the ceiling. In some places, they've managed to weave them together to form a base for their nests. Those that don't like to be quite so close to something that might still have a current running through it make do and mend carving nooks into plaster, softening the barbed wire and wrought iron from number 16's side with sticks and scraps. This hallway is a marvel of avian engineering. It is perhaps the most important part of the home. The birds that nest here make for a pretty ingenious security system. The sudden racket would alert the human person who lives at number 17 to any intruders upon the threshold. That's really more of a backup security feature, though. It's only really necessary if whatever poor soul that dared venture too far wasn't worried about leaving the house with their eyes. Some of the birds have developed a taste for the squishy parts. Not all the birds who have such tastes were really designed for them. While it's true that the birds who joined the human person's residence can be whatever they want to be, the same does not necessarily apply to their innards. You can tell by the smell. 
The crusting layer of brown and white on the walls and floor are also a solid giveaway. Whatever their skills may be, cleaning is not one of them. And, as I'm sure you've guessed, the human person who lives at number 17 is not the type of human person who would allow just anyone to set foot inside their sanctuary. Even if that anyone came bearing bleach and scrubbing brushes. The birds are lucky that the human person who lives in number 17 likes them. They don't even pay rent. The wren is unperturbed by the mess. It's off again, rattling down the corridor. The poor door at the other end barely has time to collect itself and open before the little spitfire would have smacked right into it. I'm surprised that it had opened at all, after the behaviour of the last one. Perhaps it simply trusts its compatriot to separate the wheat from the chaffinches. Or perhaps it's simply lazy. So few come this way, it can hardly be blamed for sleeping on the job. Most of the birds know the secret ways to get around. As for the ones who don't, well... Who can really say how a bird gets anywhere? We shall skip the back rooms of the all floors below the attic. They are relatively boring, sitting dusty and empty or else full of the detritus made by our careless feathered friends. You would hope that it would be at least interesting to look at, in the same way that an abandoned hotel is interesting to look at, but no. It's mostly just unpleasant, and once again, you aren't here for the architecture. So it is up the stairs we shall go, following the wren as it follows the call echoing from the high heart of the house. They fold in on themselves like an image through a kaleidoscope. If you were travelling on foot, you would almost certainly trip. But that's hardly an obstacle for the wren. It is a simple matter to simply go up, and up, and up, that is, until they reach the third and final door. This door is unlike the others. The other doors were boring, generic things that stand upright and hide what's not presentable. This door is not here to make things presentable. This door is less of a barricade and more of a portal. It is a trap door at the very top of the stairs. You can see the outline of what used to be a handle around what is now a sad, splintering hole in the wood. This trap door doesn't close properly. It chews on a handful of wires that trace down the wall to a plug socket, the only one in the house that is still intact. Soon, the glint of copper will spark out against the cracked and peeling paint. The insides will out, no matter how much masking tape gets plastered over the tear. And now, dear listener, we wait. And we do what we, and they, do best. We listen. We listen until we, like the wren, hear a tap, tap, scratch. And then the trap swings open. How to describe the sight before us? It's perfectly normal. A perfectly normal attic room. A perfectly normal attic room with a perfectly normal amount of birds roosting in the rafters and an even more perfectly normal amount of birds circling the array of screens at the center of the room. And the most perfectly normal human person who lives at number 17 hunched over them. The amount of perfectly normal debris in this room is astounding. It is a veritable minefield of memorabilia. Shelves, tables, stacks, boxes, stands, anything and everything that can be used to contain and keep safe, and plenty more besides. There is a perfect circle of clear floorboard by the window that looks out onto whatever it is that squats opposite the house. 
The window is kept shuttered. At the center of this circle sits a chair and a desk. It is here that we find the human person who lives at number 17, one knee tucked against their lower jaw as their eyes flicker over the screen. They pay no regard to the flashes of wing and beak and feather that mar their view. This human person almost appears to glow in the pale LCD light. If you look closely, just there, at the jugular, you can see the blue beat of their blood underneath skin as sallow and pale as curdled milk. If you were to look even closer, close enough to feel their breath on your face and taste the sour stench of their sweat, you could see that their pulse leaps and falls in time to the surrounding squall. They do not look at what they write. They simply dip a talon into ink and scratch out the words. When the page is full, they let it fall. They know the page will not reach the floor. The birds are well trained. The birds know exactly how to arrange the paper, which file to pull from the shelf, how to catalogue the latest edition. Of course, some secrets are more arduous than others. The birds who bring them are merely scouts and thieves, and while they are usually more capable of archiving their own work, there are some things on Little Street that are too terrible to carry for long. When something like that arrives at number 17, the human person who lives there knows to dismiss the messenger to rest and to forget. This work is not for them. It would be cruel to put such a strain on a creature. Better to allow someone else to tuck it away. The true archivists of this strange museum of memories are always close at hand. When the human person who lives at number 17 hears a song that sends a shiver down even their spine, they awaken. They stretch their lovely little rings and wiggle their claws against the mats of straw-dark hair which they make their nest, and leap from the home they have made of their master. And then they go to work. The human person who lives at number 17 loves all of their birds so dearly. Their family. But it is important that those in this family can pull their weight. Each of the birds who circle and squawk has been carefully tested. They have brought an offering, and it has been weighed. The human person who lives at number 17 will not abide those who are found wanting. It is this, then, that our dear Wren has come for. The solemnity of the occasion is not lost on them. It approaches in reverence, head dipped so as not to look at the human person who lives at number 17 in the eye. Best not to present a challenge to one who inspires so much loyalty in their followers, especially when those followers have such sharp claws. The human person who lives in number 17 rises from their perch. It unfurls into a shape more typically human, as one assumes that they are, and the ceremony begins. The wren barely hesitates before it joins the spiralling dance of its fellows about on the human's head. As it does, it allows something to fall from its beak. The ring of it slips over the spindle of a human's finger like it was made to do so. You know? It almost looks like a wedding band. If you ignore the ball and chain at the end of it, of course. The human person's hand snaps shut around it. They inhale, and suddenly they are on a beach. There is sand and shouting, and behind them is a cluster of arcade machines beeping and trilling, and children are laughing, and the sun is so hot and so bright. They feel the stick of a sweated palm on rubber. Taste an utterly inebriating cocktail of nervous energy, the impulse to impress not one but two 
utterly delightful things. Stubbornness. That was the flavor. That, and a warm flutter of pleasure at showing off, at seeing and being seen all at once. Much like a peacock, thinks the human person who lives at number 17, and who is so rudely gatecrashing this memory. There is more here, though. It is a simple thing, a cherished memory, stored in a forgotten trinket, true, but even that has weight. They can feel the pride of the wind prickling through their fingertips, and then a rushing lurch as the one's sensations merge with another. It settles into a softer feeling, a flutter in the heart like a chick just learning it has wings before it knows how to use them to fly. Affection? Yes, and warm embarrassment at the attention, the kind that brings a flush to the cheek, an awkward smile to the lips, and then the sensation of a hand in hand in another hand, and they are all joined together with this at their core, if only for a moment. As they should be. The human person who lives at number 17 trills with pleasure and opens their eyes. They roll the ball between their palms and hum. The back of their prize lights up, even though the battery should have died long ago. It simply reads, signs point to yes. The human person's face twists. It's hard for them to do with a face like that, but I think it might be trying to smile. The human person extends a hand and beckons the waiting wren down. But it's gone all shy. How sweet. I don't know if it expected the human person who lives in number 17 to look quite like this. I don't know if it expected any of it. Birds will talk. They love to talk. Every morning, screaming their business to the world. But this house is a house of whispers. I doubt that the wren had thought very much beyond the fact that they were bored. And that there was a place that would always offer something to do. Even perhaps some sense of purpose. Yes, there's no escaping that birds will talk. At length. In that annoying, twittering sing-song that haunts Little Street like a benevolent ghost. And so it is with that in mind that I wonder. I wonder if the birds who do not live at number 17 tell stories about this place. Not real stories, not like this one, but the ones you might tell a child at night to scare them to sleep. I wonder if the wren once fell asleep to songs of silence and secrecy. I wonder if it remembers any bedtime stories about the thing that lives in number 17. And how they are so much alike. How the keratin that protects their fingertips is thick and curled and cruel like a bird's. How their eyes blink glassy white while their human eyelids stay open. And how they cannot possibly be a bird. I wonder if, up until now, the wren had thought these stories were exaggerations. I wonder what else it might have thought to find here, instead of whatever this is. I wonder if it's afraid. There is a moment in which the wren does not move. So much stillness, in such a small drop of time. I wish I could offer you more than this, lovely listener. I know how much you like it when things happen. We've had so many things happen on our lovely little treat. But what can I say? 
This is the most that ever happens here in this house. This is not a place for happening. This is a place for observation, for quiet reflection, for the preservation of things that have gone before. A place for the things you are made to forget and the things you desperately try to rub out of your history with carpet cleaner and pink rubber gloves. It is a funny thing when your life is no longer entirely your own. The future may belong to the residents of Little Street, but their pasts, their stories, even their present moments are held by others. You see, the human person who lives at number 17 has been working on this collection for years. They love to mold and shape what is known into what they believe is blissful, unbiased clarity. They've become very good at it. They, of course, think that they have won this little game. That no one knows as much about the ins and outs of people's lives in this lovely little neighborhood as they do. It's almost... funny. I suppose you'll want a little more. If I let the tale go now, I'd be an awful tease. After all, you'll never hear the end of our tale. Or the beginning, as the case may be. Stories are funny like that. The wren could flee. It's fast and sharp, and no one would expect it. And if the stories are true, then the only thing that will follow it is the knowledge that in this moment they chose cowardice. It could grow old in the safety of a bird box near the edges of the neighborhood, and let that knowledge fester in them, producing the hideous bile of what-ifs that will never be answered. It knows this. So it lands... It is a tiny, frail wisp of a thing, cradled in those pale fingers. They stroke a knuckle down the wren, tracing it from tip to tail. They are learning each other's shape, learning how to move in sync, and learning what to sacrifice. Nothing worth having comes without something you'll lose. I'll let you figure out what that is. But never let it be said that the wren did not gain anything. It gained everything. After all, it has love, it has family, it has adventure of a sort. It is guarded from the ills that might befall the ordinary birds, the cats and cars, and bigger birds that prey on the small and weak. And it knows how long that guard will last. Which is to say that it will be guarded for exactly as long as that guarding holds more value than the giving. Let us hope that our friend lives up to expectations. There will be plenty of fascinating things to uncover if it does, and very few if it doesn't. I can't imagine there's anything especially exciting about the void behind its eyes. Besides, what could possibly be better for hidden observers like our dear Wren than to live to see interesting times? Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Today's house was written by A.L. Withington and edited by Matthew O.K. Smith, with music by Alex Schwartz and art by Claudia Appelart. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend. 
because they might tell a friend and they might tell a friend and who knows? Eventually, God might finally listen to us. Today's obituary reads, wife, mother, murderer, friend. She got the plague at the end. Just as well, really. Thanks for listening. Come back soon. I hope it's alright for me to write to you. Me and my friend have known each other since uni. I've got this one cousin. Is an obligate carnival. Situation is being complicated by her thrall. I've got lots of friends who are creatures. Which Muppet is the sexiest? But I'm so lonely. Rubbing themselves clean, their arms, their face, wiping over every part of themselves. My cabbages. I kissed her under oceans, among the stars. Yuck! There's no sugarcoating it. I died. I don't want to get the council involved. How can I make amends to her? How do I close this distance between us? How do I stop feeling like this? But isn't there anything I can do? What can I do? What should I do? Please help. Monstrous Agonies. Weekly advice for creatures of the night. New episodes every Thursday. Listen online at monstrousagonies.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.